Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 44. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Mark chapter 12 is one of the last chapters in the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is basically a story, a narrative about the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and, and Mark chapter 12 is, uh, is really at, at a turning point in the story of Jesus' life. It's at a turning point in the story of Jesus' life. Jesus recently, he just rode into Jerusalem with his disciples, and the crowds are gathered there to welcome him like a king uh, when he comes to Jerusalem, and, and, and we know that from this point on, it's kind of all downhill from there, right? This is the last week of his life, and the events that are going to unfold here in Jerusalem are going to be eventually what, what leads him to the cross, and so far, what we've seen in, in, in Mark chapter 2, or 12 rather, is, is this diverse group of sort of his critics, of Jesus' critics, and this diverse group of his haters, this everyone from like hardline conservatives to loose liberals to high-class heretics, all these various religious leaders that are normally opposed to each other seem to find a common enemy in Jesus. They all feel threatened by him by his position and by his teaching among the people. And so, and so they get together to sort of corner Jesus out in the public, out in the temple courts there uh, during Passover week. So this place is crowded, and they're confronting Jesus out in the public. And his critics, they're, they're confronting him with all sorts of trick questions about the Bible, trying to embarrass him in front of all the crowds there and trying to discredit him. And the reason that they're doing that, the reason that they're laying into him so hard is because really these critics below the surface, they just don't want to accept who Jesus is. And I think when we, when we read these passages of scriptures, we got to kind of ask ourselves, is there a little bit of that in us? Well, we don't want to accept who Jesus truly is. You see, for these uh, for these uh, 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 religious elite critics of his, he didn't fit into their box. For some of them, he was too poor. For others of them, he was too blue-collar or too humble in his beginnings. For others, he was too inviting to the outsiders, to those on the margin. For others, he lifted up too high those that were oppressed and without a voice. But for all of them... He was too much of a threat to the religious establishment that, that they had built on power and on privilege. And so they say, 
They approach Jesus, they confront him, and they say, look, he doesn't fit into our box, and so he can't be the one. He doesn't fit in our box, so he can't be the Messiah. He can't possibly be from God. And that's why they come after him. But Jesus answers him, and and, and he answers all of their questions in Mark chapter 12, and we see that he answered them brilliantly. Verse 34 says, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You see, these verses that we're about to read now, beginning in verse 35, they, they're sort of the point that Jesus now, after getting bombarded with questions and criticisms from, from, from all these religious leaders, verse 35 at this point is the point where Jesus sort of like walks up to the mic and he asks a question of his own. And in this question that he asks, Jesus is going to reveal to them what it looks like to be truly devoted to him. He's going to show them what it looks like to truly trust him. Because, see, that was the problem that the, the other religious leaders had. They weren't willing to fully devote themselves to him, to fully trust him. And so now Jesus is going to pose them a question that's going to reveal what it means to truly be devoted to him. And what he says is an invitation both to his critics, but also to us today, to trust him and to follow him. And so I want us to look at three things in these verses, three things. Jesus first, Jesus calls us first to delight in his unique identity. He calls us to delight in his unique identity. Secondly, he calls us to discern what hypocritical devotion looks like. And thirdly and lastly, he he calls us to depend on him completely, to depend on him completely. So let's look at that first one, all right? The first one, he calls us to delight in his unique identity. What is Jesus' unique identity? What is it that is so unique about this man, Jesus Christ? What's so unique about him is that he's not just man, but that he's also God. He's fully man, but he's fully God. He's the God-man. Let's start reading about this in verse 35. It says, as Jesus taught in the temple, out in the public, he said, he approaches the scribes now, and he asks them a question, and he says, or, or the people, and he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, really quick, Jesus is pointing out here that the scribes, who have all of Jesus' critics, these guys were the smartest ones. They were like the theology nerds of the day, right? They knew that Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, who was promised in the Old Testament, the one who would put everything right in Israel, the one that they longed for, these scribes knew that he would be called the Son of David, which is to say just a, like a really special kind of person a descendant of the famous King David from Israel's history. Now look at what Jesus says about that in in, in verse 35 again. He says, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Verse 36, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and then he quotes a psalm here. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus adds commentary and says, look, David himself calls him the Messiah Lord. So how is it that the Messiah is also his son? Now, I know this might be confusing here, but you need to to stay with me on this. Like here Jesus is quoting in these verses, he's quoting Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is actually like the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. 
And the purpose of Psalm 110 was to reveal, uh, the purpose of Jesus quoting this psalm was to reveal his unique identity as the God-man. It was a song written by King David about the Messiah. And in it, in Psalm 110, David says, The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, which might be confusing when you read it at first. You might be wondering, like, is God talking to himself, right? Like, what does this mean? The Lord is speaking, is talking to, 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 my, to my Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. But if you look back at, at this psalm, like, or look at it up here, you'll notice something. You notice that the first time it says Lord, it's in all caps, Right? And the second time it says, Lord, it's in, it's, in, it's in regular caps. It's not in all caps. Now, many of you already know this, but here's kind of like a Bible reading pro tip, all right? Like in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that is actually the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, which means I am. Literally means I am, which is a way of saying that he's just the God who simply is right? He's the self-existent one. He's absolute and unchangeable. He's beginning and end, the sovereign ruler and the creator of all. And on the other hand, in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in like regular caps, that's the Hebrew word Adonai, which is really less of a name and more of a title. It's like saying sir or, or master. It's not a proper name. So what does this mean? And that means in Psalm 110, you can basically read it as, Yahweh says to my Lord. Or to put it another way, God the Father says to God the Son. What does that mean? Like with this in mind, with, with this kind of differentiation in mind, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is revealing what we've known Ever since Mark chapter 1, in Mark chapter 1, Mark introduced this book by saying, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He refers to himself as the Son of God. See, Jesus is pointing out here that Psalm 110 teaches that he, the Messiah, would be both the Son of David and the son of God. He would be both the son of David, a special kind of man, and the son of God, God in the flesh. Now you need to understand this is a huge paradigm shift for them. Because this was like an honor shame culture. And so to have King David call one of his descendants Lord was just like mind blowing for them, right? You see, they had a view at the time all these religious leaders, they had a view that the Messiah would be like just a human. He'd be a special kind of human, a son of David kind of human, but still a human at best, at most. They believed that he was a human that would bring political liberation to Israel. But Jesus is saying that he's better than that. He's bigger than that. He's beyond that. He's more beautiful than that. He's both human and divine. He's a son of David and a son of God. He's here not just to end the reign of Israel's political enemies, but the enemies of the entire human race. Evil, sin, death, 
corruption, disease. Jesus is saying, look, you guys, you have your ideas. You have your understanding, your paradigms for what the Savior, the Messiah should be like. But he says, read Psalm 110. Psalm 110 will blow those, all of your assumptions to pieces. Show you that Jesus isn't just some human savior, but he's God himself who came down to, to, to save us. Now, I know this whole concept about Jesus being like fully God and fully man is a weird one to, to, to wrap our mind around, right? Like, is Jesus fully God or fully, fully man? Which, which one is it? It's like the answer is yes, right? It's, it's both. And it's supposed to be weird and hard to mentally wrap our minds around that because it's supposed to bring us to wonder. This is supposed to bring us to awe. It's supposed to humble us. You know what's so significant about this, what Jesus is saying to them? He's showing them that not only is he a better Savior than they imagined, but he's also revealing to them that the kind of saving that they need needed was so much greater than, than they actually are acknowledging. You see, if Jesus is fully God but not fully man, then he can't live in our place to die for our sin. But if he's fully man and not fully God, then he can't forgive us for our transgressions. But we've seen the beauty of what Jesus is saying here is that God isn't just some transcendent, far-off uh, you know, authority who just writes a letter to us from afar to reveal himself. He actually wrote himself into the story of the world. He came into our world in the person of Jesus to live for us, to, to, to die for us, and to rise for us. And here's where this gets practical for us. Here's where this is practical for us. Like C.S. Lewis had this trilemma he wrote about in, in Mere Christianity. He wasn't the first one to invent it, but he was the first one to alliterate it. <laughs> and he basically said, like at some point, when you read the scriptures and you get to, to, to know Jesus Christ, when you read the Bible, you need to decide at some point if you think he's a lunatic, a liar, or you have to come to the terms with the fact that he's the Lord. With all the claims that he made, the historic Jesus Christ, all that's written about him in history, the miracles that he performed, the claims that he made about being the one who was able to reverse death, to forgive sin, to rise from the grave, the guy's either nuts, he's a con artist, he's a liar, or he's Lord. And see, Jesus is confronting us. He's confronting his critics and he's confronting us this morning saying, look, when you read the Gospels, when you read the story about me in the Gospel of Mark, you have to come to a point where you realize that you just can't be neutral with him. You can't. You can't ignore him. What he did, who he is, who he claimed to be, demands a response. You can't ignore him. You have to respond to him. And look, that's the way that we live with other people too, right? When you spend enough time alongside somebody, serving with them, serving under them, or just, just doing life with them, when you spend enough time to get to know somebody, you get to, point, to a point where you decide like if, if this person is trustworthy or not. Can I, can I trust this person? Can I trust who they are and who they claim to be? Jesus is saying, 
to his critics. He's saying to us in this, in this revelation that he's both not, not just the son of David, but also the son of God. Jesus is saying, look, do you trust me as Lord? Do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to let me be the master of your soul, to be the Lord of your life? And when Jesus reveals his unique identity in this way, look at how the people around respond at the end of verse 37. It says, the great throng, all the people in the public there that were listening, the great throng heard him gladly, which is a fancy way of saying that the people were into it, <laughs> right? The people were into it. Jesus was kind of breaking all paradigms. He was showing that he doesn't fit in the box. He breaks up the box. And the people were eating it up. They, they were like, oh my gosh, this is, this is so intense. This is so crazy. So first, Jesus says, if you want to be truly devoted to him, you need to delight in his true identity, his true and full identity. Secondly, he wants us to discern now what hypocritical devotion looks like. So just, there's a, such a thing as true devotion that Jesus is calling us to, but now he warns us of what false devotion looks like. Let's read about it in verse 38. It says in his teaching, in Jesus' teaching, he said, beware of the scribes. Super ominous, right? Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Now, this theme of condemnation and judgment shows up again and again in Jesus' teachings. In the Gospel of Mark and the other of Gospels and Jesus' teachings, we see again and again this theme of condemnation and judgment. But I want to point out to you that when it does, from the mouth of Jesus, his biggest critiques are always focused on people inside the church rather than on people outside the church. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't have something to say to those outside the church, but his most biting criticisms are for those inside the church. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, we've seen him lay down warnings again and again for those on the inside and extend a hand of invitation to those on the outside. Part of the reason that his, these, these people criticized him so hard because he was so hard on them and so, and, and so loose and inviting to, to, to those that they deemed sinners and outsiders. Yet here, in verse 38 and through 40, we see that Jesus is railing on hypocritical devotion. Hypocritical devotion from those on the inside of the church. Those who appear to be devoted to God on the outside, but are far from him on the inside. Now, I want to I dig into these verses to sort of see and discern what hypocritical de de devotion looks like. All right? And the tendency for us is, is to take passages like this and to think of like someone out there who needs to hear this, right? To think of someone out there who needs to hear this, but that would be a mistake, Right? Like the default mode of the human heart is always towards self-righteous religion, towards hypocritical devotion. Like if, you, if you're here this morning, if you've ever said that, that Jesus is your Lord, if you've ever become a follower of him, then one of the things you'll be repeatedly tempted with is to take all of your religious works, 
to take all of the churchy things that you do and to use those things to make yourself look good or just to sort of like feel good about yourself on the inside to where you make your Christianity about the glory of self rather than the glory of God, about the protection of my own status rather than uh, uplifting the good of others. So let's look at five marks of hypocritical uh, devotion that Jesus gives in, in these verses. First, in verse 38, it says, in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now, the first point is that he, he's, he's warning us not to emphasize the external over the internal. External over the internal. Now, these scribes, they wore these long robes, right? They sort of put on their spiritual swag. These long robes that were a sign of their spirituality, also a sign of their great wealth. They wore these robes as a sign that, as a, because they were meant to be seen, right? Like out in the temple courts, they wanted to make sure that, that they were the best dressed, that all the attention was on them, that, that, uh, that, that they were seen as a, having a greater status than, than, than the other common people. Then he continues in verse 38, and it says that, that, these, that these scribes, they also like greetings in the marketplaces. And that's the second one, that they're driven by the applause of others. They're driven by the approval of others. You see, back then, this was a fame and celebrity culture that the scribes had. They were driven by the greetings in the marketplace, by the popularity in the temple courts, by how many likes they had on Instagram and Facebook, by the approval of others in the church and outside the church in the temple area. And then in verse 39, it says, they also have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor and feasts. That's the third warning. Jesus says that these are the people that crave positions of power and prestige. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture. So this group, these scribes, they wanted places of honor and superiority, both in the synagogues, in the places of worship, but also at parties, out in social gatherings and social contexts. You see, in the synagogues, there was sort of like this prime seating area up, uh, up front that only the elite could, could sit in. And these, cri- these scribes, they craved that spot. But they also wanted to have places of honor at parties and at feasts. So they would show up and they would look for where the host was seating and they would want to sit near them so they could be seen as important. So they would have access to the best food and the best wine at the party. Look at it, continue on in verse 40. It says, these scribes, they devour widows' houses. This is the fourth warning. He says, these are the people that abuse their privilege for personal gain at the expense of other people, which is sort of a fancy, and the devouring widows' houses is sort of like a fancy and ominous way of saying that they, they, they ripped people off. They ripped people off, especially the vulnerable especially the widows. Those who they were supposed to be giving a voice, they took their voice away. Those who they were supposed to be inviting in, they shut out in order to to preserve their own special status. Find your phone? (laughs) Um, So... uh, Read as it continues on in verse 40. He says, uh, and it says, for pretense, for pretense, they make long prayers. 
for pretense to make long prayers, which is the fifth and final warning, the outward piety that they display doesn't match their inward piety. Outward piety doesn't rather match their inward reality. You see, in the Gospel of Matthew, it describes this group as people who, who would love to stand and pray in the synagogues and out on the street corners because it says they wanted, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that they did this out in the public because they wanted to be seen by others. And the issue here is not with long prayers. And the issue is not with public prayer, but it's when long and public prayer becomes a pretense. In other words, when, it, when speaking to God or speaking about God is done in a way that only makes others think you are spiritual when really like you're just dead on the inside. These are the five warning signs that Jesus gives for hypocritical devotion. And you know what? This can look a lot like me sometimes. Like if I'm not careful, this can look a lot like like, like me. And it can look a lot like you, right? Jesus is warning us here. He says, look, hypocritical devotion, it, it, might, it might seem like it's close to getting it right because it, it looks and it feels right on the outside. But Jesus says, no, hypocritical devotion is not close to the gospel. It's the enemy of the gospel. It's antithetical to the gospel, so a question we should probably ask ourselves this morning is like, where on this list do we find ourselves drifting? Where, where amongst these five points do you find yourself drifting? Again, like when we're, when we're reading the, like these points, like our tendency is to think like, oh, I'm, I know who someone, I know someone who that's like, Right? But see, that's that, that, the Jesus is trying to expose here a blind spot for these scribes. And he wants to possibly expose a, a blind spot for us this, this morning. Where do you find yourself drifting is the question to ask. And to be clear, no one on this side of the resurrection reads the Bible and decides to be like a hypocritical Pharisee on purpose, Right? Like, no one decides to do that on purpose. It's normally a drift. It's a subtle drift. That's why we ask the question, where on this list do you find yourself drifting? Because you know what God is after? He's after our hearts. God is after our, our, our hearts. He is less concerned with our outward piety and our performance than he is with the inward reality of our hearts. If all he cared about was performance, then he would be content with hypocritical Pharisees. But here he says, no, beware of the scribes. And look, I know some of you in this room, because I've talked to some of you, are, are kind of new to Christianity, and, and, and you're still sort of checking this whole church thing out. You're still kind of considering what you believe about all this, and you're hearing this thinking like, yeah, you know, this is exactly what I don't like about the church, right? Because it's full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. They're devoted on the outside but dead on the inside. And if that's you, if, if, if that's your inner critic speaking to you right now, like what I want you to do is to sort of press into this text, and I want you to see honestly that, number one, Jesus hates hypocrisy more than anyone else. Beware of the scribes, he says. And two, 
I want you to consider that the abuse of something doesn't mean we should just do away with it altogether, right? Like, just because sometimes people abuse us in relationships and friendships doesn't mean, like, don't ever have friends, right? No, it means, it, it, like, the fact that, that we get hurt by people and relationships shows us that there, there is some sort of, like, uh, invisible but, like, transcendent moral standard for, for how people should relate to each other. And the reason that hypocrisy uh, is, is so distasteful for us, so off-putting to us, is because there is some sort of other transcendent moral standard that Jesus calls his church to. That's why when we see hypocrisy in the church and in religious institutions and in government institutions and in businesses and any kind of really organization or institution, that our red flag goes up is because we, there's something in us that says that's not right. Things should not be that way, and Jesus here would agree with you. Beware of the scribes, he says. Jesus is here to expose hypocritical devotion, to put it on trial. But now that begs the question for us, now what does true devotion look like? He warns us of false devotion, hypocritical devotion, but now what does genuine devotion look like? And this leads us to our last point, which is, uh, really, genuine devotion is marked by depending on him completely. Depending on him, on the Lord Jesus completely. You see, and in these last verses, I want you to see how he turns our attention sort of away from the religious elite, and he turns us towards a destitute widow. Begin reading it in verse 41 with me. It says, he sat down, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, this is in the temple, and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. So Jesus was people watching way before you were. And it says, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which uh, adds up to makes a penny. Now, I want you to picture this, this, this scene happening right here. There's this place on the outskirts of the temple, all right, where people put in their offering. 13 different boxes were lined up there in, in the temple in Jerusalem where you could just sort of walk up to and, 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 and give your offering. And it, it, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny to think of Jesus just kind of sitting there watching people give, right? Like, how intimidating would that be to have the Son of God watching what you're giving, right? Like, and it says there, it says, many rich people put in large sums. Now, you need to remember that in this day, it would have been super obvious to anybody watching who gave more and who gave less. You'd be able to tell from across the way, like where Jesus was, who was giving more because they had bags of, and sacks of coin that they carried around. They didn't have checkbooks and pens back then. They didn't have like a temple website set up with online giving for their convenience. Not like we do for your convenience, by the way. Just saying. <laughs> But it, like, if you were wealthy, though, if you were wealthy, like you, it would be obvious because you would carry these heavy bags, these heavy sacks of coins to the giving box. And that's what's going on here. The rich people were putting in large sums. But then you have this widow that catches Jesus' attention. And this widow comes up, and she gives all that she has to her name. She gives it all. And look at what Jesus says about her in verse 43. 
When he sees this widow, he called his disciples over to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, there's a sense in which this passage of Scripture is about giving to the temple, about giving to the mission, right? Like this, this woman loved God, she loved the work of God, and she didn't just talk about it, she invested her treasure into it, and, and Jesus noticed that. But the good news is that Jesus doesn't care so much about the quantity of your gift, as he mentions, as much as he does about the quality of your commitment. He's less concerned about how much you give than he is about the measure of the generosity in your heart. You see, the heart and what goes on there, that is the metric he's after. That's what we keep reading about time and time again throughout the Gospel of Mark. And if you're sitting here thinking like, oh, here we go, right? Here it comes. Like, all churches want is my money, right? Like, no, that's not true. We want more than your money, right? We want your life, your vision, your time, your spiritual gifts, because that's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants all of that because that's what he's after. He's after your heart. He's after all of you. You should never feel like prompted to give because you were guilted or shamed into it, right? Jesus makes that clear again and again. The apostles make that clear. You should never give or serve because you were guilted or shamed into it. We give like the widow does out of the overflowing love that we have for God and his mission in our hearts. And see, that's the greater lesson here that I don't want you to miss, is that this this interaction here with the widow, it's not ultimately about giving. It's not ultimately about giving. It's ultimately about how Jesus is comparing and sort of contrasting the way of the scribes with the way of this widow. You see, the scribes, they were at the top of the social ladder, you got to understand that this culture back then was a highly religious culture, not like ours, right? This was a highly religious culture. So the, so the religious elites, they were like the influencers, right? They were the famous ones with like checkmark badges next to their Instagram profiles, right? These were the high influencers on, 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 of, of the day. Not like today, like pastors and religious leaders are considered weird today, Right? Like when I meet a stranger at the coffee shop and they ask me like what I do for a living, right before I tell them I'm a pastor, like there's this inner voice in me that goes like, oh, this is about to get awkward, right? <laughs> like pastors are weird today, but back then the religious leaders, they were like, in Jesus' days, the, the religious leaders and the scribes, they were, they were like peaking at living their best life. Everyone's best life. Everyone wanted to be like up there on the social ladder. The widow, on the other hand, was the iconic symbol of vulnerability, of desperation, of being destitute, of not having a voice, of not having a place. You see, the scribes were privileged men with power. This widow was a poor and vulnerable woman. The scribes were all about displaying their influence for everyone to see, but the widow had small, quiet, humble faith trampled on by others. 
Just a few verses before we read about this widow's gift, we're, we're told that the scribes, they, they, they took advantage of widows. You see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is flipping the whole social ladder, the whole social triangle on its head. He says, beware of the scribes and be like the widow. Beware of those powerful men. Be like this voiceless woman. He doesn't look for people who are powerful, cool, famous, and wealthy. He's looking for people that will humbly follow him with just all that they have. And get no accolades, get no applause for it. Never get recognized. What about you? What about you this morning? Are you more like the widow or are you more like the scribe? Or probably a better question to ask is, do you want to be more like the scribe? With the applause of others, with the fancy robes, with the status and the privilege and the power, or do you want to be like the humble widow? How do you handle your time, your talent, your treasure that you're, you're, you're given? Do you treat it like, like, you're, an, like you're, you're an owner? If you remember our sermon from a, from, from a few weeks ago, do you, do you treat yourself like you're, you're an owner where you just kind of give out of your, your, your spare givings? Or do you look at life like you're a steward? You just want every part of you to be used for the glory of God and the good of others. What are the, the two coins for you? What is it that you have to give to God? What is it that one thing that you're tempted to just kind of hang on to for yourself? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a position or a status. The approval of others. What is the one thing that you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel trying to hang on to for yourself that you just need to give to God? Like the humble widow did. You see, the invitation from Jesus in this story is to give, but to give him all that we are. This is not just calling on his people to give generously. He's also calling on them to trust him radically. How do you get the power to do that? You need to see that the widow's sacrifice pointed to Jesus' greater sacrifice. You see, the widow was poor, but Jesus became poor. He gave it all, even to the point that he gave his life. He gave all that he had. And look, that is the vision Jesus has for his church. Man, can you imagine what your life would look like if you were fully abandoned to him in the way that this widow was? Can you imagine what impact our church would have I know it's the holiday season, but like there's, there's about, like we, I counted it this week, there's about 70 adults who, who consider King's Cross Church their church home. About 70 adults. Like imagine what it would look like if 70 people in this community were fully surrendered to Jesus the way that this widow was. Where we give our time, our talents, our treasures to leave an impact in our, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our communities. 
where in every sphere of life that God has called us to, we're seeking to live and to give all for his glory and for the good of others. You see, people normally don't get hung up on Christianity because of the intellectual barriers. It's usually because of the heart barriers that keeps people out. Because of unwillingness to trust him completely with all that you are. Where you're not just completely moved by him to the point where you can trust in him. I was reading a story from an article by Tim Keller the other day, and he told this story about a French tightrope walker named Charles Blondin from the mid-1800s. I got a picture of him up here. Charles Blondin was a French tightrope uh, walker. Look at that guy. Um, and he, he walked across uh, a rope over the Niagara Falls, and thousands of people showed up. Like about almost 10,000 people, the newspapers say, showed up to watch this French dude walk across the Niagara Falls, right? And it was so successful, they made so much money that his manager, Harry, said, we got to do that again. And so they did it again, week after week after week. And to sort of up the ante and to get more and more people come, thousands and thousands more, each week he did a bigger stunt than the week he did before to draw people in, right? So like the next week, he, he, he went out there on a bike, right? At one point, he, he stood on his head in the middle. He started doing somersaults and like flips. My, my favorite one I read about is he took, a, he took a wheelbarrow out there with like a stove on it. He cooked eggs for breakfast on the tightrope and ate it and then like wheeled it back, right? He did, I mean, they just, he tried all kinds of these crazy things and eventually, he ran out of ideas right? People were getting bored by the stunt. Imagine that, right? People were getting bored by it. And so they ran out of ideas. And so he said, you know, I'm going to do my craziest stunt yet. I'm going to carry another man on my back and do these flips and stuff. So now there's going to be two lives at stake. And so they put an ad out on a newspaper and they offered $1,000, which in the 1800s was like a heck of a lot of money. $1,000 for, and they put this ad out for this volunteer, uh, to, to come do this. And so, like, a ton of guys showed up for tryouts. To, and and, uh, and Blondin, uh, the tightrope walker, he goes out on the tightrope line with this 200-pound heavy sack to prove that he can do this. And so he puts a sack on his back, and he's climbing out there, and he's doing the flips, like, in the air with 200 pounds on his back. And he succeeded. And he went... And the, all these guys that showed up there, it's like they, they, they see him do this, and, and he asks every single one of them, this line of guys that, that showed up uh, to, to, to try out, he asks them, do you believe I can carry you across? And every single one of them said, like, yes, I absolutely, like, you just proved it right now. I believe it. And he says, all right, so w will you let me try it with, with you now on my back? And every single one of them said, no, absolutely not. Because once they were there, once they heard the roar of the waters, and saw the depths of, of, of the falls, they're like, no, I changed my mind. There's no way I'm doing this. You see, their problem wasn't intellectual. The problem was, like, are you willing to put your life on the line? This was a heart issue. It was a trust issue. So now what ended up happening is the manager, Harry, was like, you know what? No one's going to, I'll do it, right? I'll do it. And so the big day comes, and they're all out there, and there's like tens of thousands of people are showing up to watch this incredible feat. Um, and just so you know, he succeeds, right? But the lesson to get here is that he, 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 he comes out there, and the manager, 
Harry is, it, it, it climbs onto his back, but they're out there on, on, on the tightrope, and about halfway uh, across, like Harry gets super scared. He starts shaking, they start swaying, he goes one way, and then Blondin has to compensate, and it's just like crazy, right? Like there's all, like you can look up the newspaper articles, like the, the, the articles were saying that, that, I mean, everyone thought these guys are going to die, right? Like everyone thought that they were going to fall. What ended up happening is that out there on the type rope, Blondin said, uh, told Harry, his manager, he says, look, you got to stop moving around. I know this is scary, but if you try to save yourself, you will die. If you try to save yourself, you will lose yourself. You, what you need to do is you need to relax. You need to rest in me completely and just let me carry you across. And Jesus says the same thing to us. That's what it means to be fully devoted to him. Jesus says the same thing to us. To be fully devoted to him means to trust him with all that we have, but also with all that we are. You see, Jesus this morning not only invites you to find freedom in a life of giving, he gave his life to give you ultimate freedom, ultimate freedom. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus the King left his throne of glory in heaven before he came down as a baby in a manger. He left a high throne for a humble manger. The high son of God became a poor son of David. Why? So that he could live in our place for his righteousness, and die in our place for our sin. He took on flesh so that he could be questioned, so that he could be criticized, so that he could be betrayed and beaten and exploited and ravaged. He plunged the depths of death and judgment so that you and I would never have to. And so the question is, will you not only devote yourself to him, but will you accept his devotion to you? You see, that's what it means to be truly and fully and completely devoted to Jesus. It means you give up the claim that you have on your life. You say, I'm not an owner of this life and the things that I'm given. I'm a steward of it. I'm a steward of God's gifts rather than an owner. You see, true devotion to him at the end of the day is just accepting his merciful devotion to you. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.